Welcome back to Gray Matters from the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. We're recording this episode on April 21st, 2021. And according to the good folks at Ballotpedia, President Biden has issued 40 executive orders, 14 presidential memoranda, 45 proclamations, and 10 notices so far. It began with a flurry of significant orders on day one, his inauguration day, and then continued through his administration's first three months. Presidents have been issuing executive orders since the very beginning, from President George Washington onward. But today they seem an ever more significant and prominent feature of American government. So how should we understand this tool of presidential administration? To discuss this, I'm so glad to be joined today by Andrew Rudolevich. Andy chairs the Department of Government and Legal Studies at Bowdoin College, where he also serves as the Thomas Brackett-Reed Professor of Government. He's a leading scholar of the American presidency, the author of several books and countless articles on the tools and traditions of presidential power. And today we'll discuss his newest book. It's titled, By Executive Order, Bureaucratic Management and the Limits of Presidential Power. Andy, welcome. Great to be with you, Adam. Thank you for having me. Well, and I can't resist mentioning, uh, Andy, that you're a familiar face at the Gray Center's roundtables and conferences and a member of the Center's Advisory Council, for which we're grateful. And the last time that we saw each other, you were here in town in Washington to present a Gray Center working paper on executive orders titled Central Clearance as Presidential Management. That was a fascinating paper, a good discussion, and I'm thrilled to see that you've uh, returned once more to issues of central clearance and executive orders as one of the core themes of this book. It's a fascinating, fascinating book. Yeah, thank you. It has been a work in progress for a long time as a book. Uh, as I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about, the, the data that's involved really comes out of the archives. And so, you know, that is time consuming in its own right, but also very rewarding. You really get to see the uh, maneuvering below the surface. And uh, a big part of the book really is to dig back uh, to the point before an order is issued, right? Almost all of the scholarship in executive orders to this point has sort of been a count, right? Here's, uh, you know, Joe Biden has issued 40 executive orders so far. And that matters, right? But it also doesn't necessarily distinguish between the orders. It doesn't get at the uh, dynamics of their formulation. And what I discovered as I dug into uh, their prehistory, right? That if you don't assume they have an immaculate conception, you can really get a lot of interesting information on uh, bureaucratic politics, but also how presidents try to manage bureaucratic politics. And really, it's that challenge that becomes an interesting, I hope, and central theme of the book. Well, definitely interesting. The book is great. And I'll just say off the bat, I really encourage all of our listeners to to go buy it and 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 even read it, um, <laughs> but I, I I do want to talk about the data set very early on, just so people know exactly sort of what you're working with. But just our, in our first few minutes, it occurs to me maybe we ought to just start by by defining the term, right? What just in very general terms, how would you define executive order? Well, it's a challenge actually in a weird way because we. Uh, in one sense, an executive order is simply something that says at the top, executive order, signed by the president at the bottom, published in the Federal Register, right? with a few exceptions uh, for national security purposes. Really, an executive order is a directive to the executive branch to do something. And you know that actually hints at some of the limits of what an executive order can accomplish. The power to issue it has to be grounded in the Constitution or in statute. And what you're asking, you know, people within the executive branch to do has to be something they can actually do. So, you know, there are clearly spillover effects for many executive orders. Uh, They can have impacts on, you know, real people. For instance, if uh, an order is issued governing how uh, the government will procure things, right? How, you know, government buys $500 billion worth of stuff a year from the private sector probably more at the moment uh, with the COVID crisis. And so, you know, how you spend that money, what are the conditions for giving a contract? Obviously, that has an impact on the wider economy. It spurs private sector behavior. It's supposed to, right? Going back to John F. Kennedy's housing anti-discrimination order in 1962, for instance. Um, You know, in other cases, right, we've seen executive orders used to at least try to nationalize the nation's steel mills. We've seen it used to... um, 
place hundreds of thousands of citizens in internment camps in World War II, right? So these are can be very big picture, but they can also be quite small and administratively oriented. Uh, so the general category of executive order, right, again, is a, a directive issued by the president to the executive branch. Um, in that, it would be distinguished from a proclamation, which is usually to the wider public, obviously proclaiming something, uh, and also from, you know, any of two dozen other directives that the Congressional Research Service has identified, uh, including memoranda, as you mentioned, uh, determinations, guidance documents, uh, things that are also, you know, directives. So uh, executive orders, those are often used as a generic uh, title for all of executive action, are a particularly specific piece of that pie, but an important one and probably the one that gets the most attention. It's not just scholars that have trouble sort of defining and categorizing these things with precision. Uh, presidents themselves and their administrations have had a challenge. You recount in the book, um, the first the prehistory of, of how we think of current executive orders. But then, if I remember correctly, it was President Grant, right, who, who his administration tried to look back and, 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 and retroactively impose some order on these things, numbering early executive orders, um, and one that I love uh, that you point out in your book, in this process, you write, quote, orders unearthed after the fact were inserted into the sequence by giving them a suffix, adding a, an A or a one or even one half um, yeah. to sort of slide these things into the ordering. <laughs> yeah, um, at but, some point they decided, you know, that some order in President Lincoln's administration was number one. And they kind of went from there. So there is. Of course, a, it wasn't it wasn't the first, though. Right. As, as you point no. out. Um, all presidents, including uh, the 30-day tenured uh, <laughs> William Henry Harrison, have issued executive orders. Um, yeah, in the broadest sense, right? Again, executive orders as a uh, specific legal category come into existence really in the 1930s. But they, again, all these things, including scrawls in the margins of maps or memos, you know, were sort of tabulated as executive orders because, again, they were orders to the executive branch, uh, and so. As you say, you know, we have probably tens of thousands that we don't know about or that never got into the sequence. We're up to about, you know, 14,100 at the moment in the official count. And your book is not is not sort of an exhaustive study of, of all 14,000. 14, no. um, this, this is the <laughs> this is much to the relief of you and your research assistants. Uh, this is a uh, this is a study of sort of the modern era. Um, from from Roosevelt onward, why don't you give our listeners just a, a sense of the of the data set that you're working with, and, mm -hmm. and then we'll we'll dive into the book from there. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So one of the things the book recounts is how executive orders, you know, became data, if you will, right? How we actually began to keep them in a systematic way, and probably the uh, Federal Register Act, uh, which is in effect for a full year beginning in 1937. And that's where my data begin. You know, that really is a landmark in, you know, keeping a public count of executive orders to the degree that you can now go online and figure out exactly how many were issued by whom and when. The uh, data, therefore, draws uh, from executive orders from 1937 up to 2004. And that end date was chosen not because I wouldn't have liked to have gone further uh, or closer to the present day, but rather because that's where the archival availability of executive orders ends. And I wanted to be able to look at them in a comparable way. By archival information, I mean specifically uh, the files held within the government, normally within the office management budget, that track the process, uh, you know, again, the prehistory of an executive order before issuance. And so in, again, normally the office of general counsel within OMB uh, they keep executive order files, which track not just the ones that were issued, but the ones that failed to be issued, uh, which is an interesting um, side plot of the book, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But the, uh, these uh, archival files, I kind of found or stumbled across by accident when I was working on a different project in the National Archives in College Park, Maryland, right, which is where the OMB archives are housed. And again, is, is, that the, uh, is, that, is that the OIRA project? Uh, OIRA project is yet another offshoot okay. of this larger institutional history of OMB project. Uh, we'll get back to that then. I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, no. The OIRA project is great. And uh, there's, there's more of that to come too, I hope. 
But yeah. but yeah, so I mean, so all these different aspects of OMB, uh, which were things I hadn't realized necessarily, you know, as a grad student when I started working in these archives more years ago than I uh, would like to admit. The, you know, what I found were, you know, files that talked about the various negotiations uh, that were going on within the executive branch over the issuance of an executive order. And this struck me in part because, you know, at the time there was quite a lot of debate over uh, executive action generally. Uh, Of course, the Bush administration, you know, was sort of being charged with imperialism, admittedly by me, uh, among others. The uh, Obama administration, you know, kept on being imperial. They used a lot of the Bush precedents, not always the same reasoning, but often with the same result. Uh, and of course, you know, you'll remember the we can't wait campaign in the Obama administration and then his phone and his pen and a lot of flurry of, uh, you know, him being a called a dictator um, at that point and him pushing back by saying, well, I haven't issued enough executive orders to be a dictator, um, which goes back actually to the confusion we mentioned earlier, because a lot of the things that were he was being accused of uh, as doing by executive order were being done administratively, but not formally by executive order. You know, DACA being a pretty good example. If you were to Google DACA, I think almost every reference would say executive order, but there's not actually an executive order linked to it. Right. Anyway, um, the uh, basically the archival digging, you know, took me through the National Archives. It took me to their weird uh, satellite location um, over at the Washington National Records Center, which is in Suitland, Maryland. Uh, and it's a lot harder to get into, but luckily the, the good people at OMB did give me some access uh, to records held there. That's sort of records purgatory because they can be pulled back, you know, to Earth to OMB at any point uh, um, if they don't happen to ascend to the heaven of National Archives proper out in College Park. The um, so they that was some of the more recent uh, material was available there. I went to presidential libraries. I went to private papers that were held um, out, for example, at the Hoover Institute in Stanford uh, and other places. So, you know, it was a real, a labor of love, but a labor to sort of uh, establish enough of a documentary record. And, you know, I wanted to do this in a way that could be generalizable, right? I didn't want this to be 550 anecdotes about executive orders. So I sampled from the whole, right? I was looking for specific orders uh, in order to you know, be able to, again, create a random sample of executive orders by administration between Roosevelt and George W. Bush, uh, wound up with a sample size of about 550 orders. And then there are, as I mentioned earlier, some unissued orders as well, uh, because those were uh, files that I came across along the way. They are not really as randomized. I don't try to make the same kind of uh, conclusions about that grouping, but uh, but even so, uh, there's a lot you can say uh, about why an order is issued or not issued over time. But again, this is driven by those archives, driven by uh, the sample of, as I say, about 525 that I could actually code. Um, and that coding was, uh, you know, done, again, through a close reading of the archival record, and then supplemented with a lot of data that other scholars uh, very generously provided so that I could sort of add to what we knew about these orders. And we can certainly talk more about that um, yeah, when we well, talk about the analysis. Yeah. And well, I was going to get around to this later when we talk about sort of the way it, that you show how, how some administrations centralize, some decentralize, how some orders come from the top down, some come from the grassroots of the administration up. But since you mentioned coding, why don't you just give us a preview of that? Coding for what? Well, coding, as you mentioned, for centralization, first and foremost. Right? My first book, which is about the president's legislative program, deal uh, sort of establishes a, uh, a sense of when presidents will try to centralize the formulation, in that case of a legislative proposal, within the White House or the EOP generally, the executive office of the president, which includes OMB. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it sort of juxtaposes that against a decentralized process, which is out in the wider bureaucracy, right? The Department of Commerce or the EPA. And, you know, so you have these two poles, uh, a fully centralized process that doesn't really include bureaucratic input in a fully decentralized process. Of course, a lot of processes are mixed, 
and will be predominantly done perhaps in the bureaucracy, but with a substantial amount of input from EOP staff um, or you know, yet another sort of rung up the ladder. Maybe they're really driven by the EOP, but with bureaucratic input that you can track again if you're able to look step by step at the drafting process of these orders. So, you know, you wind up with an index effectively zero to three in this particular measure where something that's zero is fully decentralized, something that's three is centralized. And then you go through, you know, each individual case file for the orders and assign it one of those codes to get a sense. And just um, to give you a very broad, you know, top down look, the uh, about 60 percent of orders uh, are fully or mostly decentralized, right? They're actually not springing from the president's brain onto paper or even, you know, the White House's brain in a collective sense onto paper, but rather being driven, at least originally, um, by the wider bureaucracy. And so, you know, as I say at the beginning of the book, you know, I'm hoping to establish two things. One is that executive orders matter. That is not very controversial at this point. The second is that the executive branch matters for executive orders. And that, again, is a little less intuitive. Yeah. And just to, for the sake of the listeners, um, just to spell out how you, some of the more specifics of the coding, I just ha- happen mm-hmm. to have this page in front of me. Um, you outline, as you said, on a scale of zero to three, zero being fully decentralized, coming from outside of, of the executive office of the president. Three is centralized, springing out of the, 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 the EOP. Um, then from the other two in the middle would be uh, mixed but department-centered and mixed but ELP-centered. So you sort of mm-hmm. grade them sort of across a, a spectrum and then come up with an overall um, sort of average of, or, or, or I guess a measure of, of um, what percentage of all the executive orders you measured fall into this. So nearly 50% of, of, of your main sample and all coded op- observations, just barely shy of 50%, are decentralized. And fully decentralized, so outside mm-hmm. of EOP. And then another 16% for mixed, but really department-centered. Another 16.5% for mixed, but but executive office of the president-centered. And then just that last bit, 18.2% for, for fully centralized springing out of the EOP. I have to admit, I mean, that, that, that came as a surprise to me. Um, I suppose I would have guessed that there would have been a lot of executive orders coming out of the agencies, but not nearly this much, mm-hmm. nearly 50% growing up out of the, uh, out of the agencies. In a way, it kind of flips the, my own presumptions about EOs on their head. I, I wrote an article a couple of years ago, a short little piece for Notre Dame Law Review, uh, talking about how great it was that executive orders could, could drive a policy process to really put accountability up at the top and, and sort of point agencies in particular directions, um, following elections. And of course, it is at the end of the day, the president is ordering something mm-hmm. he's signing. But the point of the thrust of, of your analysis is that he's, he's, to say the least, pushing on open doors. Um, he's, um, he's ordering them to, to do what they want to do. Uh, often, that's true. Yeah. Right. There's a wide range of things. And also one of the things that becomes important, right, is that executive orders are not created equal. Uh, literally, of course, in the sense of their, uh, where they're formulated, but also some of them matter a lot more than others. Right. We would actually, um, you know, one of the points of the book is to try to think about the overall management process. It's not always going to make sense for the president to invest resources within the EOP uh, to design an order that really is uh, kind of part of his cler- the president's clerkly functions, as Newstat used to say. Right. Things that are, you know, some delegation questions. Um, there are things that go down to, you know, the seal of a particular executive office. Right. Or. You know, now sometimes something like a the line of succession within an agency can be actually pretty important to the president. We saw some of that in the Trump years, yeah. uh, but often it's not, right? So there are, you know, one of the uh, advantages again to being able to see the files is to get a sense of the context of the order, and then you know, again, as the coding is, you know, complicated, right? So the the centralization uh, in one chapter is the dependent variable, right? We want to know what causes that level of centralization. As you say, you know, in terms of the, the modal, you know, measure, the thing that shows up the most is a purely decentralized process. But what's likely to cause decentralization? And on the flip side, when is it going to be worth the president's while to centralize formulation or spend more 
of you know the precious resources of time and attention uh, that are very finite in any presidency on a particular order. And you know some of the uh, the findings that I have right when this is done quantitatively, and a lot of people have been working on significance measures of executive orders over time. Should uh, probably give a, an immediate shout out to Will Howell at the University of Chicago, who's you know was a pioneer in this area, thinking about you know how significant orders might be different. I mean, his whole study originally was on significant orders. I included what he would call non-significant orders because you know you again you want to get a whole sense of the the universe of what's happening here. Um, but for example, orders that. Uh, cut across the jurisdiction of multiple agencies are more likely to be centralized uh, in part because of the managerial challenges involved in coordinating that kind of cooperation across agencies. Uh, orders that are more significant by a variety of different attempts to measure that do tend to be also more centralized. Interestingly, um, there have been some surveys done. Dave Lewis uh, at Vanderbilt and a number of co-authors have this wonderful project of trying to uh, basically survey political executives over time and to get a sense of not only how they operate in their own agencies, but uh, how they see other agencies. And so they have these sort of reputational scores, right, of, you know, what agencies do you think are most competent? What agencies do you think are less competent? Uh, what do you think are more influential and less influential? And that data, uh, you know, when I paired it up to the agencies that were primarily involved in the formulation process, you know, it turned out to be pretty interesting because agencies seen as most competent are actually left to their own devices to formulate orders. Um, and so you might think uh, that, you know, ideological compatibility between uh, a president and an agency Right. Some presidents obviously feel closer to some agencies than others. Um, you know, that you would think might also have an effect that kind of washes out uh, in statistically, at least. I don't have a strong finding for that. Um, one possibility is that agencies that are uh, far from the president's preferred ideology that feel like they're disliked by the president might actually be less willing to put forward their own orders, feeling that they're unlikely to be issued. Um, so we may have a selection question there. And that's tentatively supported by the data. But broadly, again, you know, uh, when people are looking at the issuance of orders, they're often looking at political contexts. Um, I included all that kind of uh, all those variables as controls, but didn't find a lot of effect for those. What I did find a strong effect for were these managerial variables in terms of the centralization or, or lack of centralization of any given executive order. Yeah. Now, this book is the best of both worlds, so to speak, because in addition to this very thorough quantitative analysis, there's also just a lot of great stories and, and examples. And so as you, in, in your book, outline the ways in which executive orders might arise from the top down, the bottom up, or somewhere in between, um, you offer some examples. Would you like, Do you have any particular favorite example uh, that you'd like to, uh, to, to offer our listeners? To, to, there are to lots. I mean, there's a whole... Ch um yeah, I mean, there's a whole chapter giving examples of what a centralized process looks like in my data or what a decentralized process looks like um, and in between, right? So if nothing else, readers can get uh, some idea of how I tried to figure this out. And, you know, one, one danger in this kind of research is, you know, you're sitting alone in an archive. There's, you know, it's not like a, a big end data set where, you can replicate my data very easily. You've got to kind of trust my coding, which is why I go to kind of uh, great lengths, my publisher thought perhaps excessive lengths, in <laughs> laying out example after example. Um, so, you know, if we were to think, for example, uh, you know, of a decentralized process, um, you know, sometimes it is agency entrepreneurship. There was a very long battle over uh, smoking in federal buildings, right? Now, this, you know, this is one of those things that, you know, people of a certain age, me say, you know, we'll remember as, you know, you know, the, the sort of shift towards not being able to smoke anywhere is just new and totally different from how life was in the day. Um, but in the late 1980s, you know, the uh, Health and Human Services Department, you know, pushed quite rightly the idea that smoking was bad for you. 
And, you know, you shouldn't be allowed to do it. And, you know, the Secretary of Health and Human Services was lobbying pretty hard the first Bush administration to ban smoking in federal workplaces. Uh, and, you know, you have some interesting uh, correspondence, you know, within the OMB files. Uh, Dick Darman, who was the uh, director of OMB back then, quite a powerful mm-hmm. director of OMB, was being told, you know, HHS is not going to give up on this. Uh, and ultimately, Darman, you know, kind of punted up to the president and said, you know, this is effectively we're about to leave office. Do you want to do this? And uh, Bush decided not to do that um, because he, uh, you know, was worried of, um, you know, pushback, you know, from various sources now, uh, including, by the way, federal unions uh, who didn't who wanted to be able to negotiate over this issue. Right. It's not they necessarily wanted to smoke all the time, but they at least wanted that to be part of their collective bargaining process, not to have it imposed by fiat. Now, Bill Clinton comes in. Right. And he's more sympathetic, probably, to the federal unionized workforce than George H.W. And so suddenly now, you know, HHS sees another chance, though, to, you know, appeal to a new administration and they they bring it up again. And uh, there is. you know, again, a long process. They talk about, you know, you see some interesting memos in early 1993 about how quick this will be. This will be easy, you know, nice way to fight big tobacco without any real costs. And then they realize, again, you know, there are interests that are not so enthusiastic about it. Um, And it's actually issued in 1997, August 1997. Um, And Elena Kagan, uh, not to pick on Justice Kagan, but she actually, as a Clinton White House staffer, um, took great notes. And so she becomes a really valuable source for um, some of the internal debates on these questions. Uh, It's funny, you know, there's a a set of draft uh, FAQs, right? Frequently asked questions. It's going to go out with this executive order. Um, And one of the ones that her staff suggests is, why did it take you so long to issue this order? She just crosses it out. (laughs) Not going to talk about that. But yeah, so this is an order that was in formulation, you know, for, you know, something like seven years. Right. And, you know, the, uh, the sort of agency kept pushing, right. Even where the white house was not hugely enthused. Uh, and so that's an interesting, you know, case of decentralization, one that's maybe a little more dramatic than most, as I say, a lot of the decentralized orders come out of, um, you know, things that are more ministerial, more technocratic, uh, things that are, you know, Congress has just passed this law delegating power to the president, uh, but now the president needs to redelegate that power to the Pentagon or to the State Department or Commerce. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't arguments among those agencies over who ought to get the delegated power. Yeah. You know, there are uh, some interesting battles that I uh, can lay out in the book about, for example, arguments between agriculture and interior. They're at each other's throats quite a lot uh, over who should have the power to do what. There's a, you know, again, a multi-year argument over outdoor recreation and, uh, you know, area um, area redevelopment, right, which was to the fore in the early 60s. And who should have control of what and what the language should be about departments reporting to other departments you know, every word is parsed here. And so even something that's decentralized, that doesn't mean that it was, you know, boring, right? It doesn't mean there was no bureaucratic argument going on. Uh, sometimes the president will feel compelled, right? Or OMB will feel compelled to reach in and to try to manage that, at which point you wind up with a slightly more centralized process. Yeah. And we'll we'll get to OMB and, and its role in central clearance in, in a moment, but let's let's stay on this topic of just the timeframes of executive orders. This is something I found fascinating in your book. We think of, I mean, in the current context, sort of day one executive orders where presidents come in with a flurry to suddenly turn a bunch of, of administrative battleships in, in new directions. Um, uh, also, some of the historic examples, the famous ex- exercises of presidential power, uh, one that springs to mind for me is Teddy Roosevelt. Um, with the Antiquities Act, you know, de- declaring, I guess it was national monuments. Um, and just sort of just, I think right. the famous line is, I so declare it, right? He's just, he <laughs> declares it on the spot. 
But the, the, the story, one of the stories in your book is just this, this very counterintuitive notion of how long it takes for a president to, or his administration to finalize an executive order. It sounds to me a lot less like energy in the executive, so to speak, <laughs> um, from Federalist 70, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's not, it's not operating with, with energy, with, with dispatch. It's something much more laborious. Um, in some ways, it makes notice and comment rulemaking uh, seem like a, a brisk walk through the park. Could you describe this a little bit? Yeah. So one of the interesting things that's in the OMB files normally is the date that it was proposed to OMB uh, mm-hmm. by whoever thought of it in the first place, which could be internal to OMB, but is often could be a White House staffer, could be somebody in the agencies. And so that gives you a uh, marker, right? It's not an exact marker because often these uh, orders have been uh, bounced around earlier. In fact, you know, if you talk to folks at OMB, they'll say if you're a smart assistant secretary, you're going to come to OMB well before the formal order is drafted and, you know, made into a, a technically, you know, complete proposal. Mm-hmm. That said, um, at least it gives us a consistent date. If anything, actually, the implication of that is that I'm underestimating the amount of time yeah. that it takes for something to get issued. And uh, just to give you uh, the quick numbers, right, the average length uh, of time to issuance from the time that OMB gets a draft order, and again, this is only for orders that are issued, is about 75 days. You know, um, The uh, median length is about a month. And there's obviously a huge amount of variance, right? There are things indeed that come in and that are sent right out again, you know, in one day. Uh, Then again, I think the longest order in my sample that was issued is something like 1,650 days or something like that, which is, you know, four plus years. Um, So there are, you know, uh, there's a lot of variance. And again, this notion that, uh, you know, going back to President Obama's quote, we can't wait. This is why we have to move by executive action. Well, it might be quicker than going to Congress, and maybe in recent years that's especially true. But it's not, you know, again, the snap of fingers, the, uh, you know, the picking up of a pen. Uh, there is, in most cases, you know, a process uh, that, you know, is designed to protect the president, right? Designed to make sure that what the president is signing will actually do what he wants it to do, uh, that actually. Uh, has a chance of working, that it has uh, considered all the political aspects as well as the substantive aspects of uh, the order. Now, as you say, you know, uh, things that happen in the transition, you know, there is often a drafting process in the transition. Things are sort of teed up. uh, And especially as we've seen in the Biden administration, you know, that was pretty clear. Uh, You had a lot of people, of course, in that transition organization who were experienced with the broader process who had written executive orders before. Uh, and so, you know, they did. And a lot of those orders, of course, aren't necessarily doing something immediately, uh, but either reversing something in the past, which is pretty easy when it comes to drafting or saying, Hey, department of whatever, don't you think you ought to look at this now that I have these priorities rather than the former guy's priorities, right? Uh, and so that will maybe tee up a rulemaking process or something that's going to take longer. But yeah, the length of time here um, was uh, surprising even to me. Um, you know, I assumed that, you know, there would be some time in formulating a substantively workable order and that bureaucratic expertise would be, you know, important to president's ability to do that. Again, you know, um, I don't want to give the impression that just because something is decentralized, it, it's bad for the president, that the president's being rolled. Now, I mean, we do have examples in the book where the president wants to do something and bureaucratic dissent stops it. Yeah. But in general, right, I want to put this on a spectrum of management where, you know, it actually could be good management to find out that what you wanted to do wouldn't work. Or that it would have to be done a different way, and the length of time to do that again, you know the uh, one of the you know good markers of the amount of time it takes to issue an order is you know the jurisdictions across which a uh, particular proposal cuts, so that if you have 
multiple agencies who have a, an interest, guess what? That will take longer. So decentralized orders and fully centralized orders actually take less time. It's those orders in the middle where you have a mixed process that take the longest. And in that process, OMB plays uh, such a, a central and centralizing role. As I mentioned at the outset, um, that was the, the, the subject of, of a working paper. Um, it's on our website uh, in our working paper series. It's, it's paper number 20-05. It's titled Central Clearance as Presidential Management. Go look that paper up after you order the book. I'm very clear here. Um, <laughs> that's right. Don't, uh, no way. Don't cheap out here. You know, you want that's the whole right, thing. That's right. That's right. But also, in all fairness, I mean, the, 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 as one might expect, the analysis in the book is, is so much more thorough and, 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 and also colorful than, than one can put in a working paper. So in all seriousness, re- look up the working paper while you're waiting for your copy of the book to arrive. <laughs> um, but Andy, Andy, why don't you tell us about, about OMB central clearance? Cause this is, your, your book is just a fascinating account of that entire process and, and all of its challenges and its importance. Yeah. So, I mean, the paper actually, as I recall, did talked about central clearance in a, uh, across different functions of OMB, right? So mm-hmm. legislative clearance, uh, regulatory clearance, as well as executive order clearance. And obviously the book focuses on the last of those. It's definitely targeted towards thinking about, you know, how the executive order process works. But this broader concept of central clearance has been a consistent function of OMB, you know, going back to the 1930s. And so Franklin Roosevelt. The, uh, the, when it was the Bureau of the Budget. Correct, right? So the Bureau of the Budget from 1921 to 1970, and then President Nixon renamed and reorganized it as the Office of Management and Budget. A name um, change that's pretty pretty telling for purposes of, of, of your analysis in the book. Yeah, and man, but it's worth noting that management, in my sense, had been going on via OMB for much longer than that, right? Yeah. There's a, you know, the whole story of the M in OMB uh, is... is Worth at least another working paper and, uh, and maybe a book on its own. But the idea that the president should have the tools to know what the wider executive branch is doing, what it's thinking, uh, and you know, to get the benefit of effectively peer review across the executive branch, you know, that's something that Franklin Roosevelt actually was thinking about as early as the 1910s when he's an assistant secretary of the Navy. He testifies. Um, before Congress saying, you know, the president needs these tools. Um, and as president, FDR uses them, right? He moves uh, what was then again, the Bureau of the Budget into the executive office of the president, which he creates in 1939. Uh, he tasks it very specifically with uh, making sure that any legislative proposals that the administration is going to put forward have been vetted by uh, all of the agencies with an interest and therefore in flowing through BOB uh, and executive orders as well. There are some institutional competitors with OMB early on, and they largely fall away. OMB becomes the inheritor of you know, things like the National Emergency Council and the Office of War Mobilization and Reconversion. Um, you know, that's, a, again, another interesting intra-bureaucracy story. But OMB does become, quite early on, the, the tool the presidents use to make sure that executive orders are going to work, right? And that what the president is putting his name to is something that he's happy to put his name to. The process effectively, right, requires through executive orders <laughs> that were uh, put in place by Roosevelt. And the operative one actually is from John F. Kennedy in 1962. That's still in effect, executive order 11030. You want to look it up. That is a process which says that OMB uh, will receive your draft order from whatever source. Uh, They will then vet it. And if they don't sign off on it, then the president theoretically isn't supposed to sign it. Uh, The other player in that process is the Justice Department. Um, And eventually the Office of Legal Counsel becomes the home of deciding whether an issue is valid in terms of its form and legality. Yeah. Uh, and so there is a process effectively where the order goes from the originator to OMB. They send it out for interagency clearance, comes back to OMB, and then is uh, once approved there, is sent to justice and then ultimately to the White House. 
let's bracket the legal the legal analysis for a moment because I want to focus specifically on that. Let's talk first about the rest, just the the the, the policy side of things and the interagency mm-hmm. process that OMB is managing. Yeah, so it's a fairly formalized process. Um, my understanding is it shifted a little bit in the Trump years, uh, which I don't have data for systematically here, though there are a couple of stories about um, the Trump presidency as it relates to executive orders. Uh, but basically, it's centered in the Office of General Counsel in OMB. And that's my understanding is that uh, the Biden administration has uh, basically restored the process that I talk about in the book. And that's a, a process of, you know, they get the order. Um, they do work internally, right? They work across OMB. So it's not just the Office of General Counsel, but a lot of what are now called the resource management offices, where the so-called budget examiners live, the people who have specific expertise on the agencies themselves. Um, but there's a something called a views letter. It's probably a, it's a views email now. Um, used to be sent around by messenger, you know, on carbon paper, but now is uh, an email blast to the agencies that OMB thinks might have an interest in the subject matter. And they, they tend to uh, do a pretty broad sweep. You know, you'll get a lot of comments that come back that say, you know, we have no comment. <laughs> We're not interested. Why did you send us this anyway? But, you know, the other agencies, you know, are given time uh, to, you know, weigh in. Uh, sometimes you get a sense that there are some back channel arguments going on between agencies, uh, sometimes not. Uh, one benefit, by the way, one reason that agencies kind of like this process is that they find out about what their their peers slash competitors are up to. Right. So, you know, the Interior Department wouldn't necessarily know about something the Agriculture Department has proposed to the president that might be uh, a power grab uh, regarding a certain program. Uh, Agriculture liked uh, in the past, maybe it still does, to uh, make itself the chairman of different groups that it had not been the chairman of before, or to say that other agencies were worked through it uh, rather than consult with it. Right? There's again all this sort of uh, fine tuning in bureaucratic politics that matters a lot to the agencies, and so they are actually happy to be given the chance to weigh in, uh, even when they uh, might occasionally find it burdensome. When all of that's collected, OMB sort of Vets it all. They take a look and they decide, you know, well, maybe this order can move forward. Maybe it needs another set of revisions. Sometimes they'll tell the originating agency, yeah, you'd better rewrite this. And sometimes they'll say, you know what, this isn't worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, if they do think it's worth it, if it's moved forward to the stage where they can approve it, as I say, it will go, there's a memo, sort of a formal memo from the director uh, that goes to the Justice Department saying, we've signed off on this. You know, your turn to take a look. That said, often, again, those kinds of conversations have been happening, at least informally, uh, before that formal decision letter is sent. Okay, so this is this really is squarely than the legal <clears throat> analysis side of things. You've got, as you mentioned, the lawyers in the EOP, including at OMB. Um, but then this goes to justice, the Office of Legal Counsel for what, what's the phrase again? Form and form and legality. Yeah. Yeah. Both, both important things. Uh, what does that review look like? Uh, that's a lot less easy to get a, get at, right, from yeah. the archival perspective, though sometimes you get a sense of it. Uh, the OLC opinion can be, you know, a very brief paragraph saying this order is approved for form and legality, uh, which is all that they need to do to mm-hmm. uh, to comply, you know, with the executive order governing the process for these things. Uh, but often they will provide a, a lengthy justification of why they think this order is legal or not. Um, President Reagan's regulatory review order, you know, in February of 1981 is a good example of one that generated a lot of debate. You know, did the president have the authority to require this kind of cost benefit analysis of the agencies? Could you include the independent regulatory commissions and so forth? Right. I I think the OLC opinion was 20 plus pages and that was only the tip of the iceberg. So it varies a lot. Form is usually pretty straightforward, uh, though we have seen a trend of executive orders containing more and more rhetoric. Right. That was something that actually had been kept out of executive orders, um, you know, because that was something that OMB said, you know, this is not legally effective language. You don't need this language. Take it out. 
you know, if you read a, a Trump executive order, right, about it, it can go on for pages about why this is a an important policy matter. And Biden's are a little bit shorter, but he's can he's kept some of the uh, of that sort of hortatory rhetoric at the beginning. Um, OLC on the whole, you know, kind of agrees the order should be, you know, as brief as possible to do what it's supposed to do. And the legality part, you know, I mean, sometimes again, it's just, you know, well, we're revoking executive order X from five years ago. That's not hugely complicated, but you know, often things are generated that need to be thought through. And it's interesting sometimes to see the Justice Department's institutional questions getting mixed into the legal analysis, right? Because DOJ has its own bureaucratic politics, its own relationship to other agencies in the executive branch. And sometimes, you know, it tries to sneak that in as legal analysis, right? And say, well, no, the president can't do this because... Well, why? Because that would hurt DOJ. <laughs> you know. uh, but on the whole, we'll see, you know, and we'll see, you know, there's a, a whole literature about its own workings. Um, you know, in recent years, of course, uh, some criticism that it's too compliant with the president's wishes. Uh, that mm-hmm. It's become sort of a, an extension of the White House counsel's office rather than um, more strongly independent. I'm not sure we can say that is systematically true. Um, certainly on executive orders, you know, you will see some pushback, right? And uh, on the other hand, an agency that hasn't at least thought about the legality of an order before it formulates it is, you know, probably wasting some time. You know, so you would expect most orders to go through that side of the process, um, perhaps revised, but often not stopped. Now, needless to say, this this part of the book focusing on OMB's role is is just so reminiscent of your 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 previous work on OIRA, the office within OMB that that does the centralized coordinating function for rules that are coming up from the agencies. Obviously, there's big differences between those two things, but at just at a very general level, um, are, should we think of these two processes, OMB central clearance of EOs and, and OIRA central review of regulations, as being very similar or? Are they very different? I mean, again, setting aside the fact that mm-hmm. with regulations, they're not originating in the EOP the way an executive order might. But separate from that, at least looking at the things that are coming up from the agencies, are, are these two processes pretty similar? Well, they're parallel, certainly. And I think yeah. they do all fit within the, the umbrella of central clearance broadly. I think that's one reason that uh, OMB was able to move so comfortably into this role you know, in well, really, before 1981, they were already doing it, but right. you know, more formally, starting in 1981, and that that's continued, of course, to the present day across different parties and you know, very different presidential personalities, uh, because it's useful to the president to have an idea what's being vetted. One big difference, right, is that the authority to promulgate regulations is normally vested in agencies themselves by statute, and so the OMB OIRA toehold here right, is a little bit different. Um, You know, in executive order 11030, something is not supposed to move forward, you know, to the president uh, for final decision regarding an executive order uh, without OMB approval. Um, An agency can technically issue a regulation without OMB approval, right? There are lots of political reasons why they might not want to. uh, And, Obviously, you know, a lot of moral suasion on the part of a given presidency to make sure that the regulations that are being issued are consistent <clears throat> with what the uh, White House wants. But, uh, you know, the, the hook is different. The, the legal hook is different. Uh, regulations are not uh, as purely presidential, uh, even in a broad sense, as regulation, uh, sorry, as executive orders are. And and I, I always love advertising this paper of yours. It's one of my, my favorites. But uh, for folks who want to read uh, Andy's work on OIRA, start with a paper that he published in 2018 in the Journal of Policy History titled Beyond Structure and Process, the Early Institution of Regulatory Review. It's just a, a really fascinating and thorough study of the origins of OIRA. And then what made OIRA a success after its its announcement with an executive order um, the shortened version appeared in National Affairs around the same time, and and sure. I encourage people to look that up. 
Well, if I could just put a plug in uh, for somebody else's work, though, I'm very grateful of course, of course. Uh, for your advertising. Uh, Rachel Potter, uh, who's yeah. a political scientist at University of Virginia, uh, wrote a book um, called Bending the Rules, which is yeah. about the rulemaking process. But where our work coincides is in the attention to uh, what she calls procedural politicking, right? The way that agencies try to maintain autonomy in the rulemaking process, even in the face of presidential efforts to manage that more carefully. Um, so it's a, there are, again, there, you, there is some overlap between our work in terms of its focus on bureaucratic politics and then the need, therefore, for presidents to try to manage those politics in a way that uh, achieve their preferences. Yeah. Um, and, and by the way, at least some of our listeners will have read that book. It's a, it's a great book. And Professor Potter blurbs your book. Uh, so, you know, it's good. Um, <laughs> Just a few, a few things to wrap up on. Um, we've, we've gone a little, a little long, but I'm just curious, as you've sort of said a few times, your data set ends at 2004 and you don't have a window into what's happened more recently. But of course, you've been observing them like the rest mm-hmm. of us and probably more closely than the rest of us. And based on your research leading up to 2004, do you have any further reflections on what you've seen since then in the Bush, Obama, Trump, and now Biden administrations? Mm-hmm. Um, you've touched on a couple of things. One is the rhetoric of executive orders. Um, I mean, you've touched on at least three changes that President Trump seems to have made. One was moving a lot of the center of gravity of, for this into the White House Counsel's Office, um, putting more rhetoric into the executive orders. And I'd also add sort of the uh, the theater of executive orders, right? President Trump really uh, made a put a lot of emphasis on signing executive orders the way one would sign um, legislation. I know other presidents did it before him, but I think he really took it to a new level. So there's all those changes. Another change that we've touched on a little bit is just the way in which executive orders at the beginning of an administration um, are, they're an interesting process. Um, I get the sense that from one administration to the next, there's, especially in the run up to an election, there just has this feel of kind of shadow government or government in waiting, right? Sitting a group of people, many of whom have been in government before, waiting crafting executive orders to either undo what the current executive is doing um, or to to build on or or just create a new um, new executive orders. I've started to think of those as, I guess, sort of a loaded term, but almost thinking of them as almost regime change orders. You just have this, this sort of energy of a regime change when a new administration comes mm-hmm. in. And um, with each new administration, ever more weight on executive orders, in part because you have to undo or, or, or redo what was done before you. Um, and of course, all of this then is exacerbated or intensified by just political polarization. Uh, the Gray Center is, is currently organizing uh, a workshop for the a, a re- private research roundtable for the spring. And then we'll have a public conference at the beginning of the fall on presidential administration in an era of political polarization, especially considering that this is the 20th anniversary year of Elena Kagan's article on presidential administration. And so that dynamic, the dynamics of polarization, I suppose, just intensify everything we've discussed. So that's a long way of asking, that's a long way of setting up the basic question, which is, do you have any further observations on what's happened since the end of your data set and, and what we ought to pay attention to? Well, I think you're right that the emphasis on executive action as opposed to legislative change has only ramped up in that time. I don't think I would have seen a lot of difference across the second Bush administration, if I'd been granted access to that, um, to that data. Uh, President Bush had a pretty rigorous clearance process uh, that was, you know, uh, a little heavier in the White House than some of his predecessors, but was pretty consistent over time. It would be interesting to see in 2007-8, right, with a Democratic Congress suddenly, whether any of that shifted. Um, but certainly the emphasis on you know, executive action as a way of interpreting old law becomes all the more important when you can't pass new law. And so, you know, this back and forth over, for example, environmental policy, you know, we're interpreting and reinterpreting and double reinterpreting, you know, the Clean Air Act, which hasn't been looked at seriously for 30 plus years. Um, And so, you know, at some point, you would hope that, right, Congress could actually seriously revise or revisit anyway, you know, some of these framework statutes, which have been the subject of so much executive action uh, 
immigration would be another area where that seems particularly necessary, where, you know, the uh, the legal opinions uh, governing President Obama's and President Trump's um, actions were completely different, right? Uh, night and day in terms of what uh, they were told they could do. And the law didn't change. So obviously, you know, once you have that kind of room for interpretation, you need then to well, either revisit the law or live with this ping pong effect yeah. uh, going back and forth. And so I do think actually, you know, executive action is fragile. Uh, President Obama certainly learned that as President Trump tried to wipe out, you know, his uh, administrative edifice. Uh, and President Biden has been, you know, perhaps even faster in trying to tear down President Trump's. And, you know, whoever follows President Biden, if it's somebody especially of the other party, but not solely, yes. Uh, will likely do the same thing. So all of this is getting back to your point that, yeah, polarization is providing more motive, perhaps, for using executive action. Um, but the growth of government generally provides more opportunity. Um, so like the scene of a crime, right, presidents have opportunity and motive to act unilaterally, and we should expect that they're going to. One of the things I do try to emphasize in the book, especially towards the end, is the role, though, of bureaucratic expertise. Right. If we're going to be acting through executive action, through the administrative presidency, um, then perhaps at least uh, a smart president will learn how to use that deep state in a way that will be uh, beneficial, again, to his or someday her preferences. Right, To actually achieve what they want to do, they're going to be much better off um, using that expertise you know, through the central clearance process and through other mechanisms than uh, condemning it, shutting it out. Right? You'll wind up with better um, directives that are more likely to achieve what you want and not for nothing these days, more likely to hold up in court as well. So there is a, um, I think, a sort of confluence of, you know, uh, today's political dilemmas, you know, in this whole notion of executive action and, you know, sort of a plea towards taking seriously not just the boundaries that bureaucratic politics can place on the presidencies, but also on the uh, what they can empower if used well. So, you know, this is, a, again, kind of a plea for good management in the end. Now, of course, the Gray Center, you know, it's funny. I, we've mentioned a few times the executive order creating OIRA and the World White House Counsel's Office. I want to bring our namesake, Seaboyd and Gray, in sometime to offer some comments on all of this. Um, of course, the Gray Center is, is based at a law school. It's part of the Scalia Law School. And so, so much of our work is focused on law and focused, you know, for the sake of lawyers and, and law professors. But one of the most important things I think that we do is, is bring folks like you to the, to our conversations, uh, to help improve the quality of research and, and, and analysis among lawyers. And hopefully you, you can take something with you, uh, for your sake too. And just looking through our advisory council, you know, in addition to you, we have Melanie Marlowe and Shep Melnick and Jim Tozy and I'm and Joe Postel. And I'm sure I'm forgetting someone um, important, but, but, uh, you know, over and over again, we've tried to bring um, folks from political science uh, to our conversations for the sake of, of dialogue in, in both directions. And so maybe we'll end on this um, since a lot of your listeners today are lawyers and law professors. Are there any other sort of messages or lessons you would like uh, them to take with them for the, the sake of their own scholarship, um, especially, I suppose, for the legal scholars, where, what might your analysis sort of add for the, the benefit of, of legal scholarship going forward? Well, I think it does speak to the, the value of the intersection that you mentioned, the, uh, the ways that uh, people working in administrative law, people in public administration, people in political science can really uh, benefit from knowing what's being done in those different disciplines. And they are disciplines, uh, I would say, especially between, you know, sort of undergraduate education or the majors as they're created at academic departments and the law at law schools and elsewhere, right? Those are often barriers that are not surmounted. Um, and, you know, obviously, I would love to see uh, more law review articles quoting political science, uh, and not just the Federalist Papers, but some of the uh, immense amount of research that's been done into the presidency and presidential relations with the executive branch over time. Uh, but I do want to, uh, to thank uh, those out there in the audience who are working on administrative law issues. You'll see that research reflected very much in my work here. It was hugely valuable to, to get a sense of 
you know, how people have looked at this from, um, you know, a legal point of view. And, you know, I, I do hope this work can be very reciprocal and cumulative over time as we begin to, uh, to learn from each other, both the political dynamics as well as the, the legal dynamics of presidential behavior. I do think this is a, uh, an exciting opportunity to, uh, to build on, again, the, the really pretty important substantive overlap. We share the same interests, don't always use the same methods, but I think conversations are, you know, both necessary and fruitful in this area. In legal scholarship in the last few years, we've seen so many interesting articles from Chris Walker and Kent Barnett and Abby Gluck and Jesse Cross and so many others on just really think taking seriously the processes of governance and 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 how regulations uh, become law um, and so on. And and so anybody who found those things interesting, and if you're listening to this podcast, I suspect you did. <laughs> Once again, I can't recommend this book enough. It's it's by our guest today, Andrew Rudolevich. The book is titled By Executive Order, Bureaucratic Management and the Limits of Presidential Power. It's newly published, and I strongly encourage you to read it. Andy, thanks for joining us today. Hey, great pleasure. Thanks for letting me talk about the book, and uh, thanks for all the work that the Gray Center is doing to uh, advance this research. Thank you. Uh, and thanks always uh, to our listeners for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, then we'd love for you to subscribe and leave a review and and maybe even five stars, uh, which will help more people find us. Uh, Andy's always selling, and, and so am I. So please uh, leave us a, a rating and a review. And of course, please join us for the next episode of Gray Matters. Gray Matters.